All right, so today we're beginning this new series that I am running on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to run through this in ways where, where we see what these commandments do for us yet today in our world, how we respond to them. We may be coming to this in different ways. There may be some here who have experiences or you remember maybe growing up in a church where they were read every single week, right? It was part of your church service that the Ten Commandments were always there. So maybe for some of us here, you know these by heart because you've heard them so many times over and over again. Maybe for others, we've, we know of them in other ways. Right? It was just last week because it always seems to be on Easter weekend where one of the television broadcast stations plays that super long Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments. Maybe that kind of fills our head with what we think about when we think of Ten Commandments. But I want us to focus this on ways that help us in knowing how we live that out yet today and how that works for us. So today, for the passage today, I'm going to use the text that has the Ten Commandments in it. This comes from Exodus chapter 20. So the first 17 verses of Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, says this. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So many years ago, uh, when, when I lived in Kalamazoo, my family had a dog. And, and the dog that we had was an English setter. So if you know what an English setter is like, I mean, they're not huge, but they're kind of lanky dogs. And this dog could run like the wind if she had enough space to cut loose. But the house I had in Kalamazoo, I had about an acre of yard, and it was fenced in. So there was plenty of room there for the dog to run right in the yard and get all the exercise that she needed. But every once in a while, 
someone left the gate open or maybe the, the door through the garage that went out was left open or for whatever reason the dog would get out of the yard, out of the fence, and then she would have her run of the neighborhood all up and down the street and wherever. And, and times like that where we discovered, up oh, the dog's out, to have to go call the dog back in again. Because we knew that, you know, the, the safest place for the dog was inside the fence. That's where we had it set up to where she could get the exercise she needed. But because the dog was not all that bright, didn't understand everything about roads and cars and staying out of the way of all of that. So we knew back in the yard in the fence is the best place. So call the dog back in. Sometimes maybe when we think of the Ten Commandments, we we think of something like that, right? It's sort of like this fence, a boundary. The boundary in which God says, if you live inside of this, this is where your life can flourish, where you can get the most out of life, where you can be everything that I've created you to be when you live inside this boundary. When you stray outside of that, then there are things that can go wrong. But here's the thing. When, when my dog would wander outside the yard, outside the fence, she was still my dog. Right? I, I would still go call her back again. It wasn't like the boundary of the fence was the boundary of whether you're in with me or not. Oh, I guess the dog left. She wants no part. Fine, she's gone. Forget it. She's not my dog anymore. She left. She wandered off. It doesn't work that way. Then we call, call her back in again. This is maybe helpful for us when we think about the Ten Commandments and what that works like in our lives. That, that maybe sometimes we, we fall into that place of thinking, yeah, yep, I get it, I see it. it it's sort of that boundary, it's that fence, it's that border where, where I know God wants me to thrive inside of that. But, but maybe sometimes we, we think of it in terms of belonging as well. That when I live within the boundaries of those commandments, that, that I know that I'm within God's people, his will. But when we find ourselves or see others who live outside of those boundaries, that, that maybe we start to think that maybe they're beyond being part of God's people. But that's not true. God still calls people, even people outside of that fence, outside of that boundary, and he still calls them to be his own. This maybe helps us in how we understand something of the law. So so I want to give a little bit of a framework for this that maybe helps us understand how we approach that law today and what that works like for us today in the world that we live in. So something about where the law comes from, particularly with the Exodus. We read it from the book of Exodus. You know the story of the Exodus, that God's people, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt, and God comes and rescues them. That's the whole story where God sends ten plagues, and then Pharaoh's heart, his heart becomes hard, but then eventually God softens it, and they release the people, and then they come to the Red Sea, and God parts the water, and they go through. That whole story of the Exodus. All of that happens before the law. Maybe that's a good place for us to start and remember that. Because here's, here's how it did not happen. Right? The, the law did not come to Moses at the burning bush on Mount Sinai. 
Right? Exodus chapter 3, where God calls Moses, sends Moses to Egypt, tells Moses, I want you to go bring my people, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. God does not give his law then as sort of this precondition. All right, Moses, here's what I want you to do. Here's the commandments, here's the laws. You take these back to the Israelites. If they follow these rules, if they live by these standards, then I'll rescue them from slavery in Egypt. That's not how it went. It goes in the direction where God rescues his people first. God redeems and restores his people first. And then the law came after that. That's a good reminder for us. A good reminder of the order in which this goes that that tells us and reminds us of the way that God comes and calls his people and extends grace into the lives of his people first. That before there's any law that comes, that you and I come to the grace of God first. There are no conditions or commandments placed upon the grace of God of God. We remember that as a place to begin. And we see that over and over again in scripture and in particular we see it even with the story of the law, the 10 commandments. That even in that story, in that setting, God rescued his people first and then he gives the law. And he goes in that order. Now, we, we acknowledge this in other ways as well. In fact, in all the years of the Christian church as it's come down, and, and for us in our tradition, who sort of, uh, we follow a lot of the, the teachings and the doctrines that come through, particularly John Calvin, as he thought about, wrote about, and taught how we live as Christians, that, that Calvin himself talked about the law in different ways. In fact, he identifies three different uses of the law. Calvin does in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, first of all, that that the law is an instructor of sin. We know what sin is because of the law. God helps us through the law know what it is for us to be sinners. So first of all, Calvin says, that's how we see the law. We know how fallen we are. We know what broken people we are. Because of the law. That's the first thing. The second thing Calvin says is that the law is used to restrain evil. That because we know what sin is, because we know that God desires us to live in a certain way, that that God can then use this law through his people, through the church, through the world, use this law to help restrain evil. It doesn't completely abolish it, right? We don't defeat evil sin on our own, but God uses that as a restraint to hold evil back in certain areas. And then the third thing that Calvin talks about is what he calls the rule of gratitude, where the law gives us then a way to know how to live in response to what God has done for us. The exact way that Calvin says it is that the law in us produces, quote, the effects proceeding from grace, end quote. Effects proceeding from grace. Just what we've acknowledged already. 
that God's grace comes first, God rescues his people first, and then he gives the law. And Calvin affirms that. He affirms that in ways that say, you know what, the law for us is a way that shows us how we can be people who respond in humble obedience with gratitude for what God has done for us. It shows us how to live. Because we've been people who've been saved and redeemed and restored and given eternal life by by a penalty that was paid that we never could, the sacrifice of Jesus himself, that our response then is a response that says, God, how can I ever thank you enough? And of course, we never could thank him enough. But the law then provides at least a step that says, here's a way that I can live, a way that I can strive to live that says thank you to God for all that he's done for us. So those three things of the law, you know, as as it comes forward, as we think about how we talk about the law in different ways, we I read something in our liturgy earlier this morning that was from the Heidelberg Catechism, which also deals with the law, the Ten Commandments. If you've learned your catechism or know about the catechism, it's it's separated into all of these separate questions, and, and it deals with three major topics, three movements that go through the catechism. And we think about that in ways that alliterate so that we can remember them, right? The three sections of the catechism are sin, salvation, and service. Or maybe you learned it as guilt, grace, and gratitude. So our catechism, our doctrine, our teaching, moves through those three areas where we learn, first of all, what broken sinners we are, how guilty we are. We learn, second of all, how Christ has redeemed us through the grace of God, the salvation that we've received. And then thirdly, The catechism teaches us how we respond in service or gratitude to God. So in the catechism, all of the questions that deal with the Ten Commandments are in that last section. They're in the gratitude section. That we have structured this in our own teaching and in our own way of thinking about it where we approach the commandments in ways that really focus for us on how we can live lives of gratitude in all of those things that we do. And Calvin himself, as he writes about these commandments in his institutes, focuses so widely on that in the gratitude section in that same way. So that's our our framework, our approach, and that's how we're thinking about this when we approach the commandments and, and see this as something where we acknowledge once again, as Scripture always has, you know what, these are not the hard and fast rules of if you're in or if you're out. These are a response, a response of grace that we bring to God, a response that allows us to say thank you to God for all he's done for us. And it's a response that acknowledges, as our catechism says, that, you know what? We can't do this perfectly, can we? We do not keep these rules perfectly. We are unable to do that because we are still people who are broken sinners. But we strive for that. We strive for that, 
not because we're trying to earn anything from God, not because we're trying to step up another rung on the ladder, but we strive for that because we desire to live in obedience as a way to say thank you to God. So let's consider then, in these weeks ahead, let's consider how that plays out. How do we see these commandments then as a way that says thank you to God in who we are and how we live? Here's how we're going to do that. If you're a little bit older, maybe you remember the David Letterman show, right? I, I mean, it, it, was, it was something on CBS. Or if you're a little bit older like me, maybe you remember that the David Letterman show actually came on after Johnny Carson, right? It was the late, late show. One of the staples of the Letterman show, when David Letterman had a show, is that every single week he would have the top ten list, right? His top ten countdown on whatever variety of topics that he found, I found for that. And he would always count it down backwards. Well, I'm, I'm going to take something of that sort of an approach here when we talk about commandments. I'm going to take this in reverse order. So we're going to start at number 10 and count our way backwards to number 1. Not all today. I'm just taking one today. So the 10th commandment is where we are going to begin today. And then in coming weeks, we're going to count it backwards to get to number one. Not that it puts them in any order of importance that way. It's just going to be the frame that we use for this. And and maybe you'll see this as we unpack this one today, of the reason why I want us to begin at the end with the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Covet. It's a word that we don't use all that much anymore. It comes from a Hebrew word, which which is also translated in the Old Testament more times than covet. It's more often translated as desire. And it is in that, perhaps then, the only commandment out of the ten that prohibits an inward sin of some kind. Right, All the other commandments, the first nine commandments, all speak to some kind of, of an action in some way. Don't make an image of the Lord your God. Keep the Sabbath day holy in what you do. Right? Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. They're, they're all commandments that deal with some kind of an action or an expression. But the last one, the tenth commandment, speaks to something inward. Don't inappropriately desire the wrong things. Right? This one is a commandment that speaks to the heart. Not just what you do, not just an action, but but what it is you hold in your heart. And in this way, I want us to see that the 10th commandment actually concludes this whole thing as sort of a frame for the other nine. Because you could go through the first nine commandments and say, you know what? I don't have to believe any of this. But if I just do these things, I'm good. Right? If I just act the right way, whether I believe it or not, I'm all right. But you get to the 10th commandment, and the 10th commandment makes this frame around the rest that says, but wait, it's not just, not just about what you do. It's not just about our actions, but, but it's about something in the heart, the desire that we have. 
So it frames the commandments for us in that way, and I want us to begin there as a way to to see that these commandments are really about something that comes from the heart, comes from within. Because if the commandments are, as we've stated, a, a rule of gratitude, a way for us to be able to live in ways that say, Thank you to God for what he's done for us. If the commandments really follow that way, then then gratitude is not just an action you perform, but it's from the heart. Yeah, my kids, like like I'm sure most other kids, right, when they were young would have their moments of, of getting into it with each other, picking fights every now and then. And then the parent steps in and says, all right, let's break it up now. Apologize to your brother. Apologize to your sister. Sorry. Right? Um, And maybe, okay, maybe when I was a kid, that happened as well. Right? I think we've all been there. We all know what that's like, right? Someone made me say sorry, but I don't mean it. But you see, this 10th commandment then cuts through that to say, but... But gratitude, gratitude isn't just something that comes out of you. It it comes from the heart. There is a level of sincerity that belongs with gratitude. So we begin there. We begin by looking at the heart. Because we see then that all of these other commandments flow from that. It frames them all for us in that way. So we consider how that works in our lives. Here's how I want to do that just in wrapping this up today. I want us to consider then maybe two examples that help put that together for us. Two examples that help us see the way in which this commandment of you shall not covet takes root in our heart. Because what we saw, what we saw in in the catechism was not just a negative prohibition, you shall not covet. But, but the catechism actually gave us a positive spin. Did you notice that? That the catechism said it, it, it's not that this 10th commandment is only a commandment that says we should hate sin and hate evil desire, but the, the catechism said we should also then desire what is good what is right. That that it's not just that we should try to keep ourselves from bad or inappropriate desire, but we should also embrace and fill ourselves and nurture with good desire in some way. That there's not just a negative side to the commandment, but there's, there's a positive reinforcement as well. So we see that as we think about this, that this is a commandment that talks about desire. But it's not only that we should distance ourselves from the bad desires, but there's also something implied in this commandment, our tradition says, implied in this commandment that we should also actively embrace good desires. Because here's what we acknowledge through that, 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 you know what, God created us as people who have desires. Desire itself is not a bad thing. We remember that. You know, pretty early on in the Christian church, in Christian history, there, there were these 
these monks who tried to separate themselves from all worldly desire. So they would build these remote monasteries and they would live this very ascetic lifestyle in which they would deprive themselves of all desires in this world. St. Augustine tried to do that, tried to become one of these monks who would do that, but, but quickly fell away from that, realizing that, you know what, I can't do that. I can't break myself from all desires because God created people to have desires. He created us with a heart that has passion. And I can't simply turn that off. Augustine writes about that in his book, Confessions, about his journey through that struggle. So desire itself is not a bad thing. It's not wrong. This is a commandment then that reminds us to focus our desire in the right direction, on the right thing. Focus our desire in a way that echoes God's desire, that turns and steers my heart in a direction that follows with God's heart. That this commandment then instructs us to focus that way. Two examples then. Two examples that maybe help us understand that. And I'm going to take these from other parts of Scripture. One Old Testament, one New Testament. Right? First of all, in the Old Testament, from the prophet Micah, in talking about this desire, he says this. From Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? See, all these things the prophet Micah is saying is, what do I have to do? What's the action? What do I have to perform? But then he concludes a section, a well-known verse. Micah 6, verse 8 says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Seek justice, love mercy, These are desires, desires of the heart, desires that come from within. We feed and we nurture those things. You know, there are ways that we can live in which we can can actually feed those desires, that we can build those desires. So if you're wondering, how do I do that? How do I become a person who, who has a desire to seek justice? How do I become a person who loves mercy? Where do I even begin to do that, to, to bring that desire? Well, you can reinforce that with some action, can't you? I mean, we have a few examples that we would do right here at this church. Ministries that we can be involved in, things like the Backpack Buddies or the Kids Food Basket or volunteer with our food pantry, or mentor someone in our Tuesday life skills class. All things that we can do, actions that we can perform, which feed and nurture a desire to seek justice, to love mercy. That we do these things to build upon that. Or maybe think of it this way. I'm a person who plays golf, but I don't play golf all that well. But because I do play a little bit of golf, 
there is, there is somewhere in me this, this desire to do it a little bit better. You know, because no one wants to walk away from the golf course completely frustrated because your game is just awful. So there is a desire to do some things better. So, so when someone gives a little hint along the way of, hey, you know, maybe if you held your club a little different, swing, grip it like this, you know, those are all good things. All good things that work towards that practice of feeding that desire to, to play the game a little bit better. It comes with something that feeds and nurtures along with that. I will also say this. I have absolutely no desire whatsoever to, to win softball games. And the reason is, well, I don't play softball. Right? I'm not on a team. I don't ever play the game anymore. So that desire is not there at all. You see how that works. If you want to begin as a person who has a desire to seek justice and to love mercy, then, then, then there needs to be at least some outlet built into our lives to where we can actually feed that, nurture that, grow that desire. Find an expression for that desire to take hold and take shape and take root. So find some of those. See where that fits into your life, where you've got a place in your life where, where there is an expression of those desires we read about, the desires of God's heart in Scripture that can take root and be fed and nurtured through who I am, through how I live. That's one. Let's also consider a New Testament passage, right? This comes from the Apostle Paul in Philippians, where Paul writes this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about it. There's something here in which God places before us some of the desires of his own heart. Righteousness, purity, love. Those desires of God's own heart where he places that in front of us in ways that says, you know what? Meditate upon this. Fill your heart and your mind with these things. Take that in. Let that soak up in your soul, how you do that. In 2019, uh, the Barna Research Group did a, conducted a survey, uh, which they do, well, they try to do it every year, something that they just call the state of the Bible. They didn't do it last year because of pandemic. So 2019 is the most recent that we have results of that. 2019, the Barna search survey, which they conducted uh, in this country, so it's Americans, Americans who respond specifically as Christians on the Bible. 48% of those who responded to that to say, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. 48% of those people said, you know, I never read a Bible. I hear the Bible when I go to church, right? I, I hear other people read it, but I never read a Bible myself. And a large number of those people in that 48% category are people who seldom ever go to church as well. So nearly half of the people who say that they are Christians in America never open a Bible, never take in the Word of God, never soak in the desires of God's heart into their own lives. 
in that same survey, as it categorizes where that falls through, you find that of the people who would say that the Word of God, they read the Word of God, and that the Word of God is significant for, quote, shaping their choices. That ended up being 5%. 5% of people in America who call themselves Christians would say that the Word of God actually shapes their choices, impacts the person that they are, influences the decisions that they make and the lives that they live. Only 5%, one out of every 20 people who call themselves Christians would say the Bible impacts who they are. See, I think we can, we can find a place to say a heart that follows the desires of God can begin with soaking in the word of God so that we let his desires become our desires. And we do that in ways then which not only lead us to what's prohibited by the commandment, but allow us to flourish in the desires of God's heart that he plants within our hearts. It's an invitation to live in God's grace in that way. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word and thank you for the way that, uh, that you instruct us how to live. Lord, we, we are sorry for the ways that we've tried to make these commandments some rules that we have to follow so that we need to prove something on our own. And Lord, we pray today that you would bend our hearts towards yours. Allow us to find those places where those desires and passions of our own life become something that echoes and mirrors your passions, your desires. Lord, we pray that you would remove all from us that stumbles or gets in the way so that you alone may be the vision in front of us and how we can live in gratitude to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.